Welcome, everyone, to the Ministry of Helps podcast. I'm Jim Patton, your host. For those of you that have friends that you'd like to share this with, you can tell them this. Uh, the, the MOH podcast can be found at iTunes. You can get it at the uh, Google Play Store. You can find it at podbean.com. You can also listen by downloading the uh, Podbean app, either to your Android or iOS device. And, of course, you find it at our own website, moh.org, the Ministry of Helps uh, page, where you can find all kinds of uh, free materials for discipleship training and, uh, and teaching. And so we're going to start a new series this week. This particular series is going to last for four sessions. Um, it's, uh, it's called Dealing with Deception. It's, it's a great uh, series that I've heard many times and Winky has presented many times. You can get it. Uh, a video version of it at uh, winkypratney.com. You can uh, purchase that and, and uh, buy a high-quality video so you can show it in your in your church or in your Sunday school class. Uh, but this particular one is a new, well, I say new, new to us, a recently discovered cassette tape version. And so we're putting it up here on the uh, MOH podcast for you and your friends and uh, I know it's going to be surprising for some people because I've I've seen I've been around <laughs> been around the block a few times. I've seen what people think and say, and most people believe that deception comes from things like uh, a bad theology or bad teaching. Uh, but uh, as you're going to learn from Winky, it's a whole different a whole different thing that goes on, and uh, it's a it's a bit like the upside down kingdom of of God where things are just the opposite of what the world teaches. And uh, so this is a really, really great series. Uh, be sure to tune in for our, for all, uh, our, all four <laughs> episodes. And uh, so that's it. We're going to get started with part one uh, by Winky Prattney of the, de- the development of deception. We are looking at in this series on uh, deception or dealing with deception, uh, a very brief overview of something that is intimately related to what we're going to be looking at in this particular hour, and that is an order in which God speaks. We have mentioned that. Arthur C. Custins, in his book, Noah's Three Sons, points out that God gave to the three sons of Noah, and this is from a study of human history and anthropology seem to have given to them three major tasks. To the sons of Shem was given the task of revelation. And even if that revelation is perverted or become misused, it still survives as a powerful contribution to human history. And of course, I think it's significant today that the two major areas that the Christian church needs to deal with is the whole is both Shemitic, Islam and Judaism. Those are the two major areas of ministry and witness that need to be dealt with. Second one, technology, the Hermetic peoples, which we said is much broader than the, uh, the classification most modern anthropology does, uh, and to, to include what we call the colored peoples of the world, though I don't know what other colors these people are, um, and uh, Customs believes that genetically they had a much richer gene pool and that in scattering to different nations begin to have characteristics uh, crystallize out that form more than one, 
a major classification group today. We have Asiatic and then black and then Indian and so on. But uh, by the way, it has always been a hassle for secular anthropology as well as Christians. Where do we get our races from? The scripture gives us a list of a table of nations in Genesis 10. It's quite a jigsaw puzzle going back through history. You have to use linguistics and anthropology plus history to try and work out who those that table of nations is today. And he's done a, a pretty great job, I think, on that. But uh, one of the problems is if people, uh, you know, by, by breeding with a limited gene pool, you get certain characteristics that uh, become dominant. And one of the questions is, how do you get people isolated to such a point where characteristics become dominant in the pool? And uh, that's the problem. How do people get so separated? And the Bible gives us a point in time in which the human races were separated on the most profound level possible. And that's not in color or facial structure. That is in language, which is much more basic as separation. And you can imagine, and the way to scatter languages and isolate them into major groups, there's no communication possible between uh, people, and then uh, for a long period of time, you get an inbreeding and then domination of certain forms, plus uh, actual practical alterations in their geography, and you begin to develop certain strains and forms which later we call races. There is an explanation of the breakdown in language with a divine judgment and gave a separation. Anyway, technology, the sons of Ham. And uh, final, the Japhetic nations, which Genesis 10 calls the Gentile nations, which have become so dominant in this part of, the, of, the, uh, of history. The Gentile nations really have, have gained their strength by... Uh, borrowing much of the technology of Ham and applying it and making money out of it and uh, ruling the world with it. But they didn't come up with it in the first place, all right? Let me show you now quickly three combinations of these things. If you take revelation and illumination and you put them together, you come up with theology, which is the illumination of revelation. And think what theology has done in history. False theology or true theology. You get a reformation or a revival coming out of the preaching of truth or what damage the false theology has done. And again, the deception of today and the different weird things you can get into. Uh, if we took, for instance, illumination and technology and put them together, we would come up with science. Science is the illumination of technology. The marriage of Japhetic stream and Hermetic stream together. In other words, it's possible to be a technological person and not know a hill of beans about science. You know, you can give a person, some people's in the world, you can give them a sewing machine, they've never seen it before, and they can fix it in 30 minutes. Chewing gum and a piece of string, that's it, you know. And you may know all the in and outs of the fiber content and not know having a clue. You know, well, I designed the gas for this automobile, but I still don't know how to drive. Now, that's the difference between science and technology. There is one other mix here. Can you see it? It's revelation and technology married together. And that, I believe, is going to be the dominant consciousness in its perverted form of the 1980s. 
I call it psychic technology. You take revelation, you pervert it, and you come up with the occult mysticism. You take technology and you pervert it, you marry the two together, and you have psychic technology. Now, why people are so hungry at this time for a supernatural technological mix will be, I think, very clear to us when we see the great dominant characteristic of the Western world. Okay. Now, I've given you that. We've sort of driven it into your brain 40 different ways. Revelation, practical service, illumination. There's the order. Now let's explain this again. Put it like this. One, revelation. We said it before like this, we'll say it again. God speaks. Simple two-word definition of revelation. God speaks. We said this at the start of this lecture. Say it again. Uh, it was yesterday. Secondly, technology, a practical service. You do it. Thirdly, illumination. He explains it. Maybe. That is divine order. God speaks. You do it. He explains it. Maybe. Now some words from a favorite preacher of mine, Charles B. Finney. How many of you think that Finney knew something about revival? Any dude who could see under his personal ministry, over half a million people give their lives to the Lord, and around two and a half million as an indirect result of his preaching. Without radio, without TV, without any of the mass media we have today, and see over 80% of those stay true to the Lord till the day they died without follow-up, ought to know something about revival. All right? When, if you had a book by Charles Finney in which he discussed an entire lifetime of seeing God work in spiritual awakening, and pointed out the mistakes he felt he made in his early days and that were being made in revival, do you think it would be worth reading? Such a book exists. It's called Reflections on Revival. It's been republished today by Bethany Fellowship, and it is a summary of funny statements near the end of his life of major dangers he saw in revival. Now, here is a man who is correcting problems we've not even had the problems to have yet because we've never even reached that level of awakening. He's correcting problems that we'd think we're not problems because we've got so many problems that the problems he's correcting were blessings. And here's what he says. I have been led to more to consider the importance of holding forth facts as such until they are believed as facts and then from time to time explaining their philosophy. This develops and strengthens faith. First of all, what is he saying? I have been led to hold forth what God says just as he says it. And then from time to time explaining those facts such as can be explained. I have found, he said, this develops and strengthens faith. It leads people to believe that God is to be trusted and that whatever he says is to be received barely on the authority of his own testimony. Right? You understand that so far? This is the way he's saying. 
God says something to you. He doesn't explain it, but he does tell you. When you know it's him, you do it. You do not ask him why, you do it. And he said, I've been led more to consider the importance of holding forth facts as facts simply because God says them. And then from time to time explaining the reasons and philosophies behind that. This tends to develop and strengthen faith. It leads people to believe that God is to be trusted on the weight of his own authority. What he says is true simply because of who he is. All right? Now, indeed, it is easy to see that the gospel should be presented and received in this way. This is the manner in which the Bible everywhere presents it. First, receive the facts as facts, simply because God affirms them. Afterwards, explain such as can be explained and comprehended for the edification and growth in knowledge of God's dear children. What you're looking at is this. Revelation, obedience, and then elimination. Now, what would happen to a person, a group, a school, a ministry, a culture, if you reverse the order? What would happen? This is what Finney said I found. Reverse the process, and you'll find that either professed converts really have no faith at all, have no faith at all, or will and will either wholly reject or hold very loosely and doubtfully every declared fact or doctrine of the Bible which does not admit to them clear philosophical analysis or explanation. Their growth is not truly Christian growth. It is rather philosophical growth. And pride and egotism are its most prominent characteristics. I'll say that again. Reverse the process, and you will see these things. One, people who profess conversion will either have no faith at all, and will hold very loosely or doubtfully to anything that they do not understand. And secondly, the dominant characteristics of their life will be pride and egotism. Secondly, there may be much light in the mind concerning religion. This is under his thing, love the whole of religion. There may be much light in the mind concerning religion without love. Those individuals who have much religious knowledge and zeal without love are most unlovely and dangerous persons. These are their characteristics. They are censorious, proud, heady, and high-minded. They may make a strong impression, but they do not produce true faith. Perfect love cannot speak in a rough or abusive manner either to or of others. The zeal that is governed by perfect love will not spend itself in contending for or against any forms in religion, nor attack minor errors and evils. Love leads to laying stress on the fundamentals in faith. How much of this called religion has no love? It ought to be better understood than it is, that unless love is the mainspring, no matter what the outward action may be, whether praying, praising, giving, or anything else, there is no religion in it at all. Those religious excitements which do not consist in the spirit of love are not revivals of true religion. When persons profess to be converted, if love is not the ruling feature in their character, they are not truly converted at all. Now that, my friend, is a bombshell. 
that is an absolute bombshell in the Western world. Do you know what he's saying? Here's a man summing up, summing up his whole ministry, a man who, if anybody believed in thinking, Finney did. Have you ever read Charles Finney's Systematic Theology? This is not your average empty-headed dude. Here is a man who went into New York State Bar Association. Now, today in most of our evangelistic crusades, as a whole in the evangelical world, one person in a thousand that is converted is, an, is a professional person. One in a thousand. Finney went into the New York State Bar Association, and those of you who are lawyers know how tricky you can be if you're a lawyer. 300 men, all trained debaters, argumenters, and get you out, are they whole? And he presented the case for giving the life to Christ for a week in front of the scrutiny of these trained, analytical, pick-you-to-pieces dudes. And the end, not one-tenth of one percent, but 50 percent of them got saved. And that is called power. <laughs> when I was in Bible college, I ran into funny systematic theology by a guy coming up and saying to me, what does this sentence mean? I said, well, I don't know. What, what do you think it means? He says, I got no clue. It takes a whole page, and I still haven't worked out what it means. I said, let me look at it. I looked at that thing, man, it took me 10 minutes to analyze this sentence. It was a legal statement. It was couched in precise legal language to mean exactly one thing and nothing else. I had to break it down into sentence analysis. I said, oh, well, that's heavy, you know. What is this? He said, this is Finnish systematic theology. I said, oh, really? It was this incredible, see? And here's a man who really thought. Who corrected the thinking of a guy who was still known today as one of America's greatest natural geniuses, Jonathan Edwards. Still studied today in college as an example of a really brilliant philosopher. And he said, reverse the process, and this is what you will have. A generation of skeptics, of people with no faith or little faith at all, of people who are proud, censorious, heady, high-minded, who have grown philosophically, but not spiritually at all. He said, Unless love is the ruling character, the feature of the character, person's life not converted at all. Now I take you back to William Booth, the greatest danger of the 20th century. Can you remember any of those things? Those six great dangers of the 20th century? Can you remember any of those? You can look them up in your book. Those of you who are not here, this is uh, when we did these things last night. Here they were. Somebody want to call them out? This is William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, a hundred years ago, made a prophecy of what the church would be like in its greatest dangers in the 20th century. The first one was politics without God. Second one was religion without the Holy Spirit. Attempts to change the world without the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, salvation without regeneration. People saying they were saved and no change taking place in their life. Fourthly, Faith without repentance. People saying they believe, but not turning away from the things they were doing before. Next. Heaven without hell. Positive gospel that never mentions consequences. Last one. A Christianity without Christ. Now let me tell you how we got there. All right, you looking at this? 
Here's a quote from A.W. Tozer. When we sing beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord, we do not mean we're seeking contrary to or apart from the word of God. The sacred page is, however, not a substitute for God, though it has been made that by millions of people. The sacred page is not meant to be the end, but only the means to the end, which is knowing God himself. The experience of God within the believer ought to result from the text, but it is possible to have the text and not the experience. A.W. Tozer, I talk back to the devil. He's Stanley Jones, Christ at the Round Table. Stanley Jones is one of the most effective missionaries from the West that ever went east. Stand the last year before he died, he went to Japan and saw 10,500 people give their life to the Lord. I found myself, he said, not particularly interested in the victory as such of one religious system over another. The Crusaders conquered Jerusalem and found in the end that Christ was not there at all. They lost them through the very spirit and methods by which they thought to serve him. Many more modern and more refined crusaders end in that same barrenness of victory. Mere proselytization partakes of these methods and shares the same barrenness of results. We want something deeper and more fundamental. The fact is the final issue is not between systems of Christianity and Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam, but between Christ-likeness and unchristlikeness, whether that unchristlikeness be within non-Christian systems or within Christendom. The final issue is between Christ and other ways of life. Christ at the round table. All right? Now we're going to sum this up. How do we recognize deception? According to this, deception should be recognized, first of all, by the spirit and the attitude of the person, intuitively and on contact. In other words, the first sign of a developing cult is a wrong spirit or an ungodly attitude. The first sign of a developing cult is a wrong spirit or an ungodly attitude. That's where it starts. Now, this should be able to be recognized intuitively. And what do I mean by intuitively? I mean as a function of the human spirit. Nothing to do with information yet, nor even knowing the person's character. But on contact with somebody else, you feel in the spirit this. Now let me explain it. Some of you are looking, what is this? We have the mysticism? No, 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 we're not. We are into the way that God designed people to stay away from sin. Let me ask you a question. Do you have to understand why a thing is wrong to stay away from it? Can you give me an example? How about one from the Bible? To give you a clue, how about one from the first chapter of the Bible or the second chapter of the Bible? To give you an even greater clue, how about the first sin that took place on earth? Anybody remember how that sin took place? There was a certain snake. Came waddling up on whatever number of legs it had. I noticed some of its grandchildren out here. The millipede invasion is on. 
<laughs> certain snake came to a young lady. Well, I don't know how young she was, but there she was. And that young lady already had God say something to her. What God said is, there's a certain fruit in this garden, you shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat thereof, you will die. Did he explain that? No, he didn't. Nobody had even died. What did death mean? And then a snake came and gave her a little light. That's what the snake said. You will not. Did God really say that? He did. Who would have thought he would have said something like that? You will not surely die. God does know that in the day you eat, you will be like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. Knowing good and evil. Knowing it. See? Why don't you have a hit on that fruit? You will really like it. So she had a choice between some snake's explanation of the real reason why she shouldn't eat it and what God said. You eat it, you'll die. Now, I'm a chemist by background. Back home in my lab in New Zealand, I have a bottle of potassium cyanide. Now, I don't use this for devious means. It's used for making complexes and things like that. It gives you a complex if you eat it. But <laughs> this bottle has on it a label. That label says poison. And this this is the way they say it in English, not to be taken. Funny way they say that, not to be taken. I look at it, I'm even going to touch it on the shelf, and this is really, you know, not, I'm not even going to take you, boy, you stay right up there in that shelf. <laughs> I have it on good authority that potassium cyanide can kill you within five seconds. I even had some acquaintances, I can't say friends, in high school that wished to test out the validity of this proposition. <laughs> so I loaded some KCN into some bread. Some poor old seagulls came down, hit on the bread, didn't even get 20 foot in the air, and they fell dead right out of the air. Boom. Potassium cyanide is the stuff they make little pills out of and drop in a vat of concentrated sulfuric to take you out in a gas chamber. One breath and you are gone. It is called somewhat deadly. <laughs> I have it on good authority. If you eat that stuff, you'll die. You know what? I believe it. I am very careful to keep that in a different place from my bottles of concentrated acid in case there's an earthquake. <laughs> but I do not know that by experiment. There are limits to what you can know by experiment. For instance, whether death is a good thing or not. <laughs> Don't we say to knock it until you tried it? Somebody said to Dave Wilkerson once, how can you counsel drug addicts when you've never used drugs? How can you possibly relate to a drug addict when you've never used it? He said, I relate to a drug addict the way a doctor relates to cancer. I don't have to have it to know how to deal with it. But you know what we have baptized today? We have baptized disorder as the way in which we are to learn. And this is the way we teach. First, you get the facts. First, we explain the whole thing to you. Secondly, 
You pick out from the facts you have what you want to do. And then later on you become spiritual. You know what we're better at doing than anybody else in the world? Informing people. We have the most sophisticated techniques for accessing information and transmitting it than any other civilization before. Not only print, satellite, media, of all different forms. We've got computer access. We've got incredible things. We're really good at illumination. We have dynamite at illumination. What we are terrible at is obedience. What we are really low on is revelation. And because we have so filled up a generation with illumination, we have left huge holes in their life and made them hungry for the supernatural and hungry for the practical. And that is why psychic technology is going to be the dominant consciousness of the 1980s. The first test, then, of a person who is in deception is an attitude, an attitude that is unlike God's. It is an attitude that shows up in a bad spirit or an ungodly... Um, for instance, when I meet a person, if my heart is clean and I am in love with Christ, when I meet somebody, straight away I ought to feel that. You see that? We've suppressed that in the Western world. We said, ah, oh, you don't go by your feelings. I've learned to do this. If I'm walking with God, my first impression of a person is usually the right one. My first impression, that's it. It's only later on when you get to know them better that you begin to modify that impression. And when you really get to know them, later on you find that the original impression was the right one. The second test of a developing cult has to do with the practical obedience. And we call that bad fruit or a wrong character, character flaws. Now, you have to know a person or spend a bit of time with them before you start seeing character flaws. After all, you can fool some of the people some of the time, you know, the old Barnum and Bailey thing. So in other words, to know whether a person has bad fruit or bad character, you have to see them long enough in a situation where they react to something. For instance, a person can look marvelous. They can smile and, you know, all kinds of things. And then you get them in, you know, the, I heard about the guy who was in the cave, and he came out to say that he had... He had spent 14 years in a cave and he had, he had achieved total holiness. And as he did, the, uh, as he was sitting down, the flower pot fell down and he swore. This is called revelation of the character. Some of the, a good way of revealing character is to play risk with somebody. Um, this is probably a game designed by God. <laughs> to reveal character flaws. Have you ever seen a perfectly sanctified pastor freak out because a ball did not minister to his conceit by going what it was supposed to in a game called golf? <laughs> flaws in the character is the second indication of a problem in deception. The last one is bad statements. Or wrong statements. In other words, 
the person starts saying things that do not match our propositional objective word of God. In other words, we could say the person fails to conform to Scripture. Now, notice the order of this. This is last. This is the last part of the thing. Now, where is our witnessing based on? Our witnessing to people who are in deception is based on this. First, you start with your statements and you compare them with their statements. And you convince them that their statements are wrong. This will change their character and eventually they'll become spiritual. And we work in the exact opposite to the way God does. If you would like to do a little study, since most of us are Japhetic, you might like to see how many times in the New Testament people said, our conscience also bearing witness, which demonstrates that they were guided and directed by the Spirit of God to their conscience without information. Should we go over to this side? Our conscience did not bear witness, so we didn't do it. Okay. Now here comes the crunch. It's bad enough as it is so far. Where does a cult originate? It originates in a proud attitude. Pride is the heart of every cult. Again, a quote from Finney. Love is not easily provoked. To be easily provoked is always a sign of pride. If a person is full of love, it is impossible to make him exercise sinful anger while love continues. Love thinks no evil. Show me a man who is always suspicious of others' motives, and I will show you one who has the devil in him and not the Holy Ghost. Love rejoices not against, not, rejoices not in iniquity. See a man who exalts in his neighbor's fall or cries out, I told you so, and I tell you that man is far from, perfect, from being made perfect in love. Now, I read a statement of Finney's that totally shocked me. I'll give it to you now. It shocked everybody that I've shared it to. It shocked me when I read it. I'm not easily shocked. Here it is. It is sinful to criticize or to speak evil of any being in the universe, including the devil. God does not speak evil against the devil. I thought, what? <laughs> Do you know why he said that? God is infinitely unlike sinful men in this respect. Because love does not exalt in somebody's pain, sin, or tragedy. That God would be as angry and as much against the hurt that comes to his worst enemy as he would to his best friend. He is absolutely just. He hates all injustice and any bad-mouthing and any putting down of any being in the universe, including the ones who hate him most. And I thought, man, that is an incredible statement. Do you mean that God will not even bad-mouth his worst enemy? The answer is no. And I was thinking of a scripture. 
Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil on the body of Moses, dared not bring a rousing accusation against him. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that God does not stand against what the devil is doing, but he will not rejoice in his fall. He even was told, told one of his prophets to take up a lamentation for the devil, and he fell. Because God cares about even those who hate him. And the care and the love God has for his worst and bitterest enemy is the same as he has for his own son. Now, doesn't this say things about counseling the cult? After all, when a person is a cult, they're not really a person, are they? You're a cult. See? You met a cult? Now I want to take you, we haven't got a lot of time, we're about finished here. What have we got, 15 minutes? Less? 20? More? 20. I'm going to give you now the beginning of a chart, and I've called this little chart the development of deception. And uh, try and get you maybe at the end of the week, if we, well, maybe leave a copy of this to be mimeographed or something. We'll try and get you the whole chart. The whole chart is summed up there, and then the research on it, is on this double page thing here with all the background study and stuff on it. But we don't want to go through all those because it'll take us eight weeks. I know how long it took me. I'm not going to lay 300 hours on you. So what I want to give you is a summary. We're going to look at the first deception in the universe and how it took place. How the first deception of man took place in the book of Genesis. It's recorded there. But the first deception in the universe didn't take place there. It took place earlier. And this is called How Church Kids Fall. The devil is a church kid. He came from an evangelical church. He came from a fundamental church. He came from a spirit-filled church. <laughs> he came from a church in which the pastor was flawless. And as perfect as a pastor can be, he did not come from a place that had crummy teaching. He did not come from a place where all of the people in the church were hypocrites. He didn't even come from a church where there was any sin at all in any of the members of the congregation. He also had a place of responsibility in that church. So he was not belittled or left out of things. As a matter of fact, he was a deacon in that church. There's nothing wrong with their music. I said yesterday morning, the music was out of this world, quite literally. And the devil fell. He was deceived. How did he fall? How was he deceived? What is the order in which deception develops? Now, for being in a perfect environment with perfect teaching and perfect fellowship and all of these other things could fall, if anything will show us how the process of deception takes place, we need to go to the original, to the source. And the thing that summed up these hours of study for me was this passage in Isaiah 14. I looked at it with totally new eyes. I could ask you this question. How many of you read this passage before? And, and I don't know how many times I've read it. You know, and you've daily gone through the scriptures and stuff. But I never looked up, ever, 
these funny little things in it. Recesses of the north and sit on the mound of the congregation and all of these funny things. I just thought, well, you know, the devil stutters. Five times he said the same thing. This chart and the one that backs it up that we hope we can get copies for you is not based on a usual comparison between what a deceived person believes and what the Bible says or what you believe in the particular version you're using. It is instead based on the attitude and the character of a person involved in deception. It shows you how deception develops. And it shows you, in looking at the opposite of it, how to minister to a person who's deceived. All right? One. In Isaiah 14, see, I told you Virginia would get to it. Isaiah 14, we have a statement of Satan's fall. This is what he says. In verse 12, it tells us, He is Lucifer, son of morning. How are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, that's Isaiah 14, verse 13, I, one, will ascend into heaven. Two, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Three, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Four, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Five, I will be like the Most High. All right? You can head your chart up and call it the development of deception. And all I'm going to do, I'm not going to in this chart because that time fly. I'm going to do is give the first one. Uh, the chart divides in half, right down the center, line down the center, and make two columns. First one on this side. Put six steps of spiritual deception. Not two, but of. Because the last one isn't a step. Two. On this side, put satanic pattern. Put beside this, I will mount up. To into the heavens. What is the fundamental sin? The ancients used to call it pride. Here's another way. An in dependent spirit. You can put that actually over this side if you like. Yeah, right. Better put it on this side. And you can explain it on the other side and call it a failure to have a servant's heart. If I asked you what God's purpose in your life would be, what would you say? 
What is his chief purpose in your life? To conform you to the image of Christ. God wants you to be like him. God says, I want you to be like God, right? What does the devil want? What does he want to be? Like God. Isn't that weird? Both God and the devil want the same thing. Isn't that strange? God says, I want you to be like me. The devil says, you'll be like God. I want to be like God. So this is the aspiration to be like God in an ungodly way. It is possible to want to be spiritual with totally unspiritual reasons. And that is the beginning of a cult. An independent spirit is a failure to have a servant's heart. I will mount up into the heavens. Underneath independent spirit, you can put these words, a deviation from Christ. Any kind of deviation from Christ himself is the beginning of an independent spirit. What it is, is an attitude of disloyalty to God. So put that word, disloyalty to God and a denial of our need of Him. attitude of disloyalty to God and a denial of our need for him or of him. Scripture says, love does not vaunt itself, is not puffed up. It also says in Jude 16, this is a characteristic of those who depart from Christ. I'm going to look up at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and uh, We'll come back here in a second to, to uh, Isaiah. 1 Corinthians 13 is a description of what love looks like. It's a description of the character of Christ, of His Spirit, of His attitude. Love suffers long and is kind. Love is not envious. Love does not vaunt itself or hold itself up. Love is not puffed up. That's what love is like. Now when you're witnessing, how do you witness to anybody? The first thing that must hit, if a person is not a Christian, this will be their fundamental problem. Pride. An independent spirit. The most selfish songs I've ever heard in my life is my way. I, did, I rewrote the end of it. I did it well and went to hell, but did it my way. You know, that, that's one of the most damnable songs ever written. But it's an expression of our generation. We say it is a virtue to be independent. We don't need anybody. We don't need anything. Some characteristics of pride. Ungratefulness. You cannot be grateful if you're a proud man or a proud woman. You cannot be grateful. Uh, one of the brothers was sharing here last night with me how he went to help 
some girls move some stuff in a very strong uh, ERA-type situation in the college. Girl said, I don't need your help, you know, butt out. And he, you know, he's just trying to be kind and help. He didn't come over with any macho superiority out of the way, boys. You know, here is a man. And, well, he was just trying to help, you know, and said, well, you know, I just thought I'd come and give you girls a hand. Don't call us girls. <laughs> what is that? Independent spirit. I don't need your help. I don't need your, I don't need anybody's help. I'm a self-made man, I'm a self-made woman, I'll do it my way. That is the damning attitude of the universe. It is the first thing in the development of all religious deception. It is that. The ancients used to call the basic sin, the, the fundamental sin, the big sin that lies behind, behind all others, an independent spirit, a failure to have a servant's heart. Now listen, God is God. He is he doesn't have to try and be like God. He is. And what is he like? The heart of the universe with ultimate power, ultimate wisdom, is ultimate humility, and ultimately, he is a servant. And this is no better expressed than in Jesus' time when he came to earth. Though he were God, and thought it not quality with God a thing to be grasped after, he laid aside his rights as God. And he became a man, and he humbled himself to be a servant, to even die criminal's death on the cross. Now, we, we just broached this thing. Time's run out. I want to turn the book of John. I just want to pick up one little illustration here. If you knew that a very close friend of yours was about to die, he told you many times, it's my last few hours, and I'm going to die. Maybe he's dying of some disease, and he says, I've only got you with me for a little while. So, you know, and you really admired and loved and respected and looked up this person. He invited you to be with him just before he died. Don't you think you'd hang on to his last actions that have tremendous significance, the last things that they said just burn into your brain? All right, here's Jesus. He's about to tell him, my time has come. They're about to take me. And he gathers them around. And in John chapter 13, they have this last love feast together. And at the end of supper, he stands up. Now, if you were writing the Bible... And here is Christ, God himself, who walks among men. Here's what it reads. For the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. Then Jesus, knowing, verse 3, that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he was come from God and went to God. Now what an introduction. All right? He arises from stuff. Now, I have a Bible that right on that corner got ripped. See? Right there. Ripped. Let's say the rip took half that page off. And that happens to be right opposite there. I just missed it by uh, one page. See, I'd never read the Bible before. And I picked up this Bible, and I came to that, knowing that all things into his hands, he was come from God. He went to God. He rises from supper. Rip. Nothing there. How would you fill him in? His last hour. Ultimate power, resident in a human being. God become man. He stands. He rises from supper. Fill it in. What would you say? 
And he spoke to them these words. Here goes down that thing. He rose in their sight right through the roof. You know? Extended his hands. They lit up like Christmas trees. You know? How would you fill this in? You would never in your wildest imagination fill it in the way it ended. Never. No novelist could think up this ending. It is utterly unlike anything you could possibly scheme for this. He rises from supper. He laid aside his garments. He took a towel and began to wash their feet. That's how that finishes. And nobody can believe it. Not even the people who were there. Peter goes, no, wait a minute. You're not going to wash my feet. No way, Jose. You are not going to do this. And he starts. Peter said, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus said, what I am doing now you don't know, but you will know hereafter. And Peter said, you will never wash my feet. My feet are dirty. Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus said, well, how about a shower then? Good old Peter, he's always into things, you know. Yeah, I do my feet. Oh, well, in that case, how about everything? I'm just one of my feet. I want to be totally. When the God of the universe made his final statement, he made a statement of a servant just before he died. It was a statement of giving, a statement of dependence. Father, I've done all of these things as you've shown me. They were yours, and I've loved them, and now I've given them back to you. That is a servant's statement. And when the God of the universe revealed his innermost heart to man, he showed the exact opposite of what we think. The person has power, they do as they go around, and they're macho man, and they demonstrate the whole, you know, mm -hmm. I have power, don't you know that? See? And the God of the universe, when he demonstrates ultimate power, shows the heart of a servant. And the devil can never understand that. He cannot understand it at all. Let me give you a parallel. When little nations meet together with other presidents, you can always tell the smallest nations by the bizarreness and the color of their dress. Powerful nations usually wear very dark, subdued suits, ordinary color suits. But small nations have beads, bangles, four million medals. This is called power. Have you ever met a very strong man and shaken hands with him? I mean, these guys that, you know, pick up a grapefruit and go, <laughs> and it's instantly dehydrated and pips go all over the world. You know those kind of guys? In contrast, have you ever met a small man who is conscious of his smallness and shaken hands with him? Here is the results. Shake hands with a very strong man. He shakes hands very Carefully and very gently. Surprisingly gently. Because he knows if he makes a mistake, your fingernails will pop and fly in all directions. See? You shake hands with a small man who is aware he's small. He breaks your arm. <laughs> this says to you, baby, I may look small, but I have such power rather than... See? You ever seen a Great Dane meet a Chihuahua? <laughs> who makes the biggest noise? <laughs> Those demon-possessed dogs. <laughs> Big dogs.
Alex doesn't even bother just go. <laughs> they know they can crunch Chihuahua for enchilada, man, and that's it. The heart of the universe. Christ himself is dependent. Everything he did, he said, I do. I do nothing except my Father. See? Total dependence. It's a chain of authority even in the Godhead. Independence. We are independent. We don't need anything. We can do it our way. Loyalty to who? Loyalty to myself. Independent spirit. It's the heart of all deception. You going to stop here? I'm going to go any further? Independent. Or plan ahead. Uh, I want to leave you with this thought. We in the Western world are the best there are in information. That means this. That's the exact reverse of the way God speaks. And the greatest amount of deception in the world is coming from the West. And if I was the Antichrist, I wouldn't come out of some esoteric country, I would come from the West. And if I wasn't a person, I'd just be an attitude to rule the world. And if I was the devil, the place I'd go to to rule the world from is the West. Because the very heart of the problem would reside in the greatest strength of the culture. It's information and illumination systems. That's what I'd do if I was a devil. So, good friends, one thing this will tell us is this. The breeding ground of every major cult will come out of this system. Illumination, then Obedience, finally, spirituality. And if that be so, we in the Western world are the purveyors of the greatest amount of spiritual deception in this generation's history. All right, that's it for this week. There's three more episodes in this, uh, in this series coming. Don't forget to tell your friends about this. You can send them to moh.org for all kinds of uh, discipleship training materials. You can send them to podbean.com to listen to this or tell them to download the Podbean app for their phone, either for the Android or the iOS phone. Uh, you can get it from the, um, you can get it at iTunes, uh, a podcast from iTunes or a podcast from the Google Play Store. And that's it for this week. So thanks for tuning in to the MOH podcast. I'm Jim Patton saying see you next time.